Welcome to the Jumpstart Philly Real Estate Radio Show, the program that shines a spotlight on positive real estate development and neighborhood revitalization in the city of brotherly love. Coming to you live from the G-Town Radio Studio on Maplewood Mall in Germantown. Here's your host, Alina DeLisser. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Jumpstart Philly radio show. The construction crew is back. Uh, this might be a regular occurrence. But anyway, my name is Alina, and my guest today is an entrepreneur who deeply understands the needs of both buyers and sellers of real estate. His name is Christopher Plant, and he's a real estate broker, investor, and real estate developer. Christopher is a Brooklyn transplant who moved to Philly in 2002 and has never looked back. In fact, Christopher has made it his mission to spread the word that Philly is a great place to live, work, and play. He should know because his life changed and his world got better once he settled here. Welcome to the show, Christopher. Thank you very much, Alina. So, Christopher, you are an entrepreneur who wears many hats, so to speak. You are a real estate broker at Elephant Wissahickon. Yeah, Elephant Wissahickon Realtors. Sorry. Yep. And you're the founder of a website called MoveToPhilly.com. Yeah. And you are also the founder and president of a very exciting shared workspace concept called Kismet Cowork that you've successfully launched already in three Philadelphia locations. That's correct. There's so much to talk to you about today. I'm so excited, <laughs> and I want to dig in and cover all of this. That's great. But let's begin at the beginning. So tell us a little bit about your background and how you found your way into the world of real estate. So thank you for having me here, by the way. Uh, this is a great little spot, and uh, the construction will be nothing. Yeah, it's we'll, complimentary. We'll, we'll make it through. You'll make it we'll through. Make it through. But um, yeah, so I moved to Philadelphia in 2002. Um, I came here with my wife, and we had uh, our first kid, Morgan, and we were just about to have our second. And we had been living in New York City for many years, and at that time, uh, we just found New York to be somewhat untenable. And uh, we wanted to be uh, in a, a nicer place, and we decided to find our way to Philadelphia. I had lived in Philadelphia before. I had gone to Temple University for two years right when I was out of high school. Um, I was a terrible student and, uh, and left for 15 years uh, before I came back. But, uh, but yeah, so we came in 2002, and, um, and it, it, it took me three years to find my way into real estate. But uh, I uh, became a licensed realtor in uh, 2005 and have worked with Elfant Wasahickon the entire time. Great. So why are you so bullish on Philly? Besides the, the difference in the cost of living, what is it about the city of Philadelphia that makes it such a complete package? So, I mean, that's a good question because I think that, um, you know, Philadelphia has always had this kind of bizarre international reputation as this place that you didn't want to be. And, you know, when I was here in the late 80s, it was... It had done a lot to live up to that reputation. <laughs> and, um, and then I left, but I was always coming back. My mother lives in central Pennsylvania. My brother went to and graduated from University of the Arts. Um, I maintained a lot of friendships with my, uh, my people here in Philadelphia throughout the years and would come three, four times a year. And so I knew what was going on. 
When I came here, I was uh, fresh off my experience in New York City, and I was dealing with uh, the rising cost of real estate, the sort of oppressive um, lifestyle there of like, go, 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 and everybody was running around like crazy. Um, Apartments were small. It was hard to entertain um, in any place outside of your home. So every uh, sort of relationship that you had was transactional. Uh, You know, let's meet at a bar. Let's meet at a coffee shop. Let's have dinner. Uh, and, um, and I, and I really wanted something else. I wanted to communicate with people in a different way and, and, um, and have, um, a different community. Okay. So, um, move to philly.com. Tell us about the genesis behind that. And I know that, um, you were seeing several things in the marketplace that made you feel like the, the timing was right for something like that. Right. So move to philly.com is a, is a fun story. It was actually a website that was launched by a friend of mine, Loris Kreslin, and he had um, launched that with his girlfriend at the time. And they were just kind of, you know, developing interest in Philadelphia and were giving tours to people who were interested in moving here. But and they were realtors. They or? were not. Oh, no, they okay. were just doing it to kind of generate enthusiasm for something that they believed in. And, um, and they ran that for a little while and then it just kind of went dormant. And I, uh, had uh, a friendship with Loris and I went to him and I said, Hey, I, I really love that, that website that you had. And at that point I had already launched uh, a Brooklyn to Philly website because I was really, um, targeting that type of individual, somebody who was very much like me, who was, uh, potentially, you know, at the nexus of a lot of things that were happening in their life that were similar to mine. And I just thought that, uh, you had an opportunity to be in Philadelphia, to develop that community that I was talking about and to be, um, kind of just have, have a more capacity to develop the fingerprint on your life that, that was important to me and I thought it would be important to other people. And so I went to him and I asked him if I could, um, you know, sort of buy that domain from him and he agreed and so I bought that and, um, and it allowed me to kind of broaden my approach to uh, bringing people to Philadelphia and it allowed me to, to think wider about like why it was important and think about the economic reasons, think about the cultural reasons and think about the, um, just the general lifestyle approach that, that I wanted to take um, in giving a signature to my own real estate practice, um, but then also to be a part of, of something that I felt w- was larger. And that was the, the Philadelphia kind of um, renaissance that I think that we're still going through. Right, right. That's really great. So, the, you know, the Move to Philly website, what I really like about it is that it's a portal. I, I, obviously, you know, you're in the real estate business, and so it is a, it's, a, it's a lead generation tool, obviously. Yeah. But it's a beautiful lead generation tool because even if somebody might be, you know, 12 to 24 months away from making a move, uh, there's so much information on there. It's a portal, like a conduit to getting more information and to start educating for people that don't live in this city and don't, you know, aren't f- familiar with Philadelphia to really start to get familiar with, with the city. And I think a lot of times... When people think of, of realtors, it's kind of like, like you said, this transactional, oh, they're going to sell me, they're going to sell me. And what I really like about your approach is that you, you are giving people a very broad, holistic view of, of what the city's like and are educating people regardless of whether or not they end up doing business with you. Right. I think that um, what I was looking for was an authentic pathway into my real estate practice. And um, I wanted to, you know, so I kind of turned around and looked at myself and decided, you know, okay, this is, uh, you know, a storyline of my own. And how can I kind of develop that into uh, a business practice? And, and that was 
um, really what it was about. And, you know, I have uh, developed a bunch of videos. And it also allowed me to kind of talk about the broader context of Philadelphia outside of, of just this, this transactional kind of like buy this house. Right. And it was something that, that I really, um, as I got deeper and deeper into what was happening in Philadelphia and how much impact the people that I knew were having on the city, how much they were helping move the needle on what was happening in Philadelphia, that was also something that I wanted to share. And, um, and it allowed me to kind of tell more stories and to, I think, um, just have this, this really nice approach to obviously trying to generate business and to do transactions, but to do it in a way that, um, that I felt was, was not only helpful, um, but practical and, and really, uh, you know, came from a, a true place. Great. So one of the truly unique aspects of Philly is that it's both a starter city where someone could start their professional life because mm-hmm. there's so many top world-class universities here. Mm-hmm. And it's also a settle down and start a family city as well, too. But what are some common misconceptions that, let's just focus on New York, Brooklynites, have about Philly? What are some, some like long-standing misperceptions that you have to kind of fight against? So I think that for decades there was a sort of um, perception that there was this gigantic cultural learning curve in being in Philadelphia and that um, you were going to miss out on a lot of things because New York is where everything happened. And, um, and I think that that has changed dramatically. And I think that we, it's clear that we have world-class restaurants. It's clear that we have world-class entertainment. It's clear that we have world-class um, sports teams, world-class sports teams. Of course, <laughs> of course. Um, yeah, I got a funny story about that, that we can get into later. Um, having grown up in Washington, DC. Okay. But, um, you know, the idea that you were going to miss out on something because you were in Philadelphia as opposed to New York. That it was less um, than. Yeah. It's always had this inferiority Absolutely. complex. Yeah. And I think that that's changed. Um, you know, granted, uh, there is this other thing. Like, because of our proximity to New York City, uh, I don't think that we should always be comparing ourselves uh, to that city. I don't think people in Marseille are like, uh, Marseille oh. is better than Paris. <laughs> you know, I don't think that that, that happens. And I think that, um, you know, we, uh, I argue that for the first time in, in our history, uh, we are gaining value by our, you know, closeness to New York City because, um, you know, I know a ton of people who are living very active lives in New York City from Philadelphia. Great. So can you share with us a success story, a, a client of yours, whether on the commercial side or the residential yep. side, who is a transplant too? Yeah, I think um, there's a bunch of them, but I think probably my favorite story is the story of uh, a gentleman by the name of Andy Scott. And he lives in Scotland. He is uh, 53, and he's lived on the European continent um, for most of his life. He did live in Australia for some time. And uh, he and his wife, Hanukkah, who is Dutch, uh, reached out to me from my website and uh, started talking about the fact that they were interested in moving to the United States. And they were looking at Chicago, New York, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and, and we're thinking about Philadelphia. All the Frommers uh, travel guide yeah. cities, right? Okay. Yeah, well, or <laughs> so, also like that, that represented legitimate markets for world-class artists. Um, oh, but the, okay. the, the funny part about it was is that he didn't lead with the fact that he's like, hey, I'm a world-class artist. I've done you know, gigantic projects all over the world. He was just like, I'm a sculptor. I'm thinking about moving to Philly. And um, I ended up meeting them for breakfast at La Colombe down on 19th and Walnut and uh, just having like a really nice conversation. 
And, um, you know, I told him a bunch of things about Philadelphia. We didn't go too deep. We were together for 45 minutes. Um, and I gave him a bunch of things to do in Philadelphia. They left. They wandered around the city, yada, yada. That was done. I was like, if you're coming back, let me know. And uh, later that day, I uh, bumped into them down at Third and Market and uh, just randomly, uh, kismetically. And, um, and uh, I was like, hey, okay, this, this happened this for a reason. Fate. Yeah, this um, is fate. What are you doing right now? And they're like, we're, we're on vacation, mate. And, uh, and so <laughs> I, um, I said, come on, jump in my car. I want to give you what I call my five-corner tour of Philadelphia. And I took them up to, to Fishtown. I took them down to East Pass Yonk. I took them over to Graduate Hospital Rittenhouse. I took them up into Fairmount. And then I brought them out to Northwest Philadelphia. And I took them down to the Kitchens Lane entrance to the park. And they showed them the Wissahickon, which I think is like probably the greatest cultural treasure we have in the city of Philadelphia. And, um, and then we went and had a beer at my buddy's uh, place, Goat Hollow, over in Mount Airy. And as we were dri- I was like, oh, now I'll take you home. And I was like, you know, can we stop by uh, my house and I'll introduce you to my wife and my kids. And we walked into the house and my wife was cooking dinner. My kids were around. It was a very wow. nice little scene. And, and finally, Andy uh, says, uh, do you mind if I, I show you my work? And uh, he shows me a video. Uh, I'm making a video of this gigantic... Um, you know, 100-foot sculpture that he had done in Scotland that was a $7 million sculpture. And uh, it was absolutely marvelous, unbelievable. I can't believe the humility of this guy not leading with that. Like, hey, you should help me. Look at what I've done. He did not mention it at all. Uh, We kind of like fell in love uh, outside of all that. And then when I saw what he did, I was just absolutely blown away. Um, He has indeed um, moved to Philadelphia. My wife and I were able to go and visit with him in Hanukkah in Glasgow, Scotland. And he's got a beautiful studio with some other friends of mine up in um, Kensington. And, uh, you know, he's trying to, you know, he's already got his eagle sculpture developed that he's, uh, we're trying to figure out how to get in touch with Jeff Laurie. And so that's just one of the stories of people that found me through the website and have come and are making Philadelphia a richer and, and more culturally interesting place. Definitely, definitely. But, um, Christopher, you're burying the lead yourself because you're an artist, too. I, yes, I am. So, um, come well, on, yeah, come yeah. on. Well, so, no, I, I went to art school. <laughs> um, I graduated with a painting. It's uh, very important to you. I mean, you went to is. film school. You went to art school. I did. Yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit more um, about that. So, yeah, I went to, to, to film school originally at Temple University. Uh, I quit school. Then I went and traveled all around the world. I lived in Tel Aviv. I lived in Key West. I lived in Amsterdam. Um, and then I settled in Boston and went to the Massachusetts College of Art. And, um, and then from there, I ended up moving to, uh, down to Duke University and working with something called the American Dance Festival. And um, that's where I trained in, in theatrical lighting and production and that sort of thing. And then after that, I moved to New York City. And when I moved to New York City, I uh, sort of very um, luckily got uh, a job offer immediately from a world-class company. And uh, within three weeks of moving to New York City, I was calling a show at the Joyce Theater at 18th and 8th Avenue. And um, a week after that, we were doing a, a, a show in the Queen Elizabeth Hall in London in front of 4,000 people. Wow. Yeah. So this is fascinating because all of, all of your background with the arts and creative types and theater and film, it's kind of all coming together. There's like another layer to your yeah. business with uh, Kismet co-work yeah um first explain to our audience for those that might not be exactly clear on what a co-working space is what is 
Kismet Cowork? Yeah, so Kismet Cowork is essentially, well, and co-working in general is basically a shared office space solution. And um, the, the nature of work has changed so much in the last 15 years. And with the laptops that we have and the phones that we have and all the powerful um, tools of technology have really allowed people to kind of deconstruct how they work, why they work, and where they work. And so um, if you think of co-working as essentially the Uber or the Airbnb of, of workspace. Of office space. And um, commercial real estate is generally um, hard to find. It's very expensive. You have to put long leases in place. And so before you even begin a business, you're you know, $10,000, $20,000 in a hole. And this is seeking to kind of change that. And um, we offer you know, office space, conference rooms, desks. Um, floating member space, all on a month-to-month basis, and we do it in what we think is a very well-designed space um, that is not asking anybody to sacrifice any quality of life to just have a place to work, um, and it sort of beats out, um, you know, setting up a business in a coffee shop. But it's also very scalable, and so if you're growing a business and you don't know whether you're going to be two people in two years or ten people, it allows you to come in and create very immediate solutions to what you might need from your work. So um, there seems to be something really special about co-working spaces. I've read some research out there that says people who are members of co-working space uh, um, report higher levels of work satisfaction and than people who work in a traditional um, regular office. So tell us more about what makes shared communal workspace so effective for some people. What's one of the things that really kind of dri- is driving that? I think it is the diversity of, of the work that's happening. And um, when you go into a co-working space, there are people doing all kinds of things. And so you might have an attorney. You might have a designer. You might have somebody who's just there to write a book. We have people that, that have janitorial service companies. We, have, uh, we had a woman who was a, a traveling salesperson for Valvoline. And so you're constantly bumping into people that you would not otherwise bump into. And I think with work... And um, the, the sort of lifestyle around this, this constant pressure to produce things, uh, you could easily forget the social component of what makes a life. Right. And so I think that um, for many people, and it's not all, but for many people, there is this additional qualifier uh, being able to meet and talk with people that you wouldn't normally find. And, um, and there's a joy in that. And, um, you know, but there is a particular balance in like making all that work. You don't want to just sit at the water cooler or the coffee pot all day and and do that. But um, I think that people are generally proven to be much more productive if they work in bursts and take a little break and work in bursts and take a little break. And I think that that the co-working space allows uh, for people to really kind of like get out of their head, see some some other person, hear some other idea, and bring that back to their work. And now you've touched on an interesting aspect because unlike a traditional office, um, you know, the co-working space consists of members who work for a different range of companies, ventures, projects, industries. And because there's little direct competition or yeah. internal politics, yeah. people don't feel like they have to put on a work persona yeah. to fit in. Do you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that... Um, you know, there are all types of people, of course, right? And there are people that come in, they put on their headphones, and they just dial in. And they just want to be on their computer, and they don't really want to connect. And then there's other people who are constantly looking for that next conversation. Um, but I think that in the end, it is that mix of, of people, and, and it isn't um, where, like you talk about the competition, um, 
there are people who are able to think more broadly about what they're doing and, and what comprises a whole day. And I think that that's um, kind of what you're getting at. But mm-hmm. there is uh, a lot of community that we work on building in these spaces and helping bring together um, the, the the members in a way that, that feels organic. Um, you know, by having ha- – we just had a happy hour last night at our Kismet One location in Chestnut Hill. And there were only eight or nine people there, but we hung out for two and a half hours. And so – that was um, kind of interesting because you, we didn't have to go to a bar. We didn't have to go out to a restaurant. Um, we still were very connected to our work. But then we also ended our day feeling like we had achieved kind of this also this social level of, of a lifestyle that, that I think a lot of people miss out on. Mm-hmm. So the name, tell us about the name. What is, is there a story behind the name Kismet? And for folks who don't know, what does Kismet mean? Kismet is, at its truest sense, um, sort of... Um, in its modern definition, considered the intersection of luck and serendipity. And it's a word that I came to way back when I was in high school. I've always used it, always held on to it. And, um, you know, it for me is kind of like a lifestyle. You know, whatever happens, there is some value, some something good. It's like the X that, factor. Yeah, okay. and something good that can be extracted out of whatever happens, whether it's losing a job so that you can get your next one, whether it's missing a train so you can bump into a friend. There's a bunch of different ways that, that you can kind of use it to remain like eternally and ruthlessly optimistic. But, um, you know, for me... I uh, had a very clear perception of what I wanted to call this space. And it was going to be called, um, we opened our first space on Willow Grove Avenue in Chestnut Hill. And it was going to be called Willow Grove Commons. And uh, I was like, this, is, this gets it, Commons, you know, okay. common space. Right, right. Um, but then I just kept thinking, I was like, that does not represent like, who I am or, or what uh, I want. Yeah. And, uh, and one day I uh, went and I sat in this big empty construction site all by myself and just sat there and was like, what do I want from this? What is the underlying purpose of me doing this co-working space. And, um, and it was for me to really bring people together that would not otherwise come together. And that is how I came back to this word kismet. And we talk about it all the time. We've like made it into an adjective. We've made it into a verb. And um, we've done all kinds of stuff with uh, the kismetification of the word. And, I like it. And how we sort of bring it, bring it into our, our daily life and daily Put use. Put that on a baseball cap. Yeah, right? I know. <laughs> <laughs> or a t-shirt. That's great. Yeah. So let's go back a little bit further back because um, it's a really great origin story on how you came up with the idea to develop a co-working space because yeah. we're going to get to talk we're going to talk a little bit later about the 800 pound gorilla in the room uh, the big competitors out there but first we have competitors oh, yeah <laughs> um so uh your origin story for kismet because it's a really fascinating story about how you came up with the idea yes yeah, so i had um when i started doing my real estate i made it clear to myself that I was going to have to like develop a life in Philadelphia outside of that. And that's when I sort of came to this sort of like nonprofit world mm-hmm. and wanting to do a lot of volunteer work and get involved in some boards and, and help people grow some, um, some businesses and, and that sort of thing. And I, I started off by getting involved with something called Payne's Park, which was an organization that ended up building a $4.5 million two-acre skate park right by the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And that was uh, a really fun uh, exercise and an endeavor that I was working with them for over six years. But um, probably the most interesting thing was I met a gentleman by the name of Thaddeus Squire who was very much in the arts and had started uh, an organization called Hidden City Philadelphia. And it was 
uh, he was the type of person that wherever I went, everybody was like, oh, you got to meet Thaddeus. Oh, you got to meet Thaddeus. And so when we finally did meet, I was, uh, you know, throwing an art show in a, uh, a high, um, high-end condo uh, on Rittenhouse mm-hmm. Square. And, um, and he came and we met. And um, I immediately became involved with Hidden City Philadelphia, which he did the first event, uh, large-scale uh, festival event in 2009, and then a second one in 2013. And we um, just became very good friends. And he, after doing that, started an organization called Culture Works of Greater Philadelphia. And out of that, um, which I immediately became a, a founding board member of, we started talking about, like, what, what does this mean? How do you help artists? How do you create um, that common space where um, there can be value um, across the board for organizations and that are community. all... Well, and, and all trying to do the same things. Like, and, and one of the things we talked about was the space. And at the time, there was a building called 1616 Walnut. And it was housing, like, 100 different arts businesses. And, you know, but all, they all had kind of like the same thing. Siloed, they, right? They all had a boardroom. They all had, you know, uh, an admin. They all had office space. They all had internet. They all had these commercial leases. And, um, and they were all getting kicked out of this building, which is going to be turned into a residential real estate development. And that's when we came up with this idea of doing a co-working space. And this was mm-hmm. 2011. And, you know, that, that gorilla that you were talking yep. about, WeWork, had already started and had become very well known. And, um, and so we ended up taking a 6,000-square-foot lease on a space at 13th and Walnut. They're still there now. And uh, starting a co-working space for uh, the arts and culture scene here in Philadelphia. Great. And so from that, that was kind of your pilot, right? Your, yeah. your first, your test case. And well, then from there... Oh, go ahead. What we did with that is is we went around and we learned all about co-working. And so we interviewed a bunch of people here in town uh, about co-working. We looked at all of the other markets that were out there, and, and we just learned a ton about it. And so we opened that up, and, you know, Thaddeus is, um, like I said, it's still running. Um, but at the same time, that the whole idea kind of like like attached itself to my heart and my brain. And people were coming up to me all the time, whether it was a – a psychologist or a small business and they're like I just want a small office I you know I, I I'm willing to share a bathroom sometimes I need a conference room and so it became clear to me that there was a need for this in um, like tertiary markets and that was the, the types of places that I wanted to be and you know I spend an enormous amount of time in Chestnut Hill Manary Germantown and um, you know the real estate office that I work out of is in Chestnut Hill and uh, I had a friend who had a beautiful building and he had a self-storage space in there that was wildly underperforming and um, and I went to him and asked him if we could do it there and uh, and then I went to my brokers and my real estate company and told them what I was thinking and they were very generous in their support and um, and you know so we ended up doing it there on the at 12 West Willow Grove and we opened up that space in um, on April 1st of 2017 so we're coming up on our second year anniversary congratulations that's great yeah so as as we referenced a little bit earlier, there are some huge uh, players in the industry. WeWork is one of the famous ones. But as you said, you have a really unique take on this concept. Um, very local. We're big. The big companies, the big boys, cannot go. Right. I mean, you kind of have built have a built-in competitive advantage with your business model. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've identified these, um, you know, high high income? Markets yeah. that just have barriers to entry for the yeah. big players. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, um, 
you know, my, this is where my real estate background really comes in handy and just having a really clear understanding of, of how the city works and, and where people are and, and what they're doing in those places. And I had, I remember reading a book uh, once where it talked about, you know, the McDonald's spends $150 million a year on location scouting. And even Burger now, King, wow. even now, and Burger King spends $10 million. But Burger King will always put their spaces within one mile of a McDonald's. And so they're, they're benefiting mm. from that. And so I never considered myself uh, a competitor to WeWork. And I actually believe that my brand and what I'm doing um, is more successful in a market where there are larger co- co-working spaces. And so, um, you know, there are industrious. There is Make Office. There is now a, a group called Spaces. There's the yard. There's a lot of big co-working companies here in Philadelphia and they're all within a 10 square block radius and they're all essentially selling the same thing and um, not necessarily building community the way that, that I want to. There are several um, very successful brands like Indie Hall and what was Benjamin's Desk but is now 1776 that are um, also local operators that are doing a great job. But um, I knew that I wanted to go out to the areas where I lived, you know, Chestnut Hill, when we decided to open our second one, which we opened at 10th and Spring Garden. Again, it was this approach of being on the outside of all of the action. You know, I, know, I think that Spring Garden is one of the, the best east-west corridors in the city of Philadelphia for kind of getting around. And, um, and there's this area there that is uh, undergoing a lot of development. And there's some real estate developers that are doing fantastic things and lots of new businesses opening there. And so I felt that that was a great place to be. And then our third location, which we opened up just um, two weeks ago tomorrow, uh, is in Maniunk. And I think that that's a great area where, um, you know, there's over 100 businesses there. There's over 45 uh, restaurants. And so there is this whole culture um, that's there. There is this whole commercial district. But, um, you know, there's not great workspace there. And so I thought that that was another fantastic place to be. And so... Um, and so that's why we've been kind of pursuing that model. Right. But, you know, we do believe that, um, you know, we're going to places where these big competitors would never come. And they would never come because of space issues, right? Yep. I mean, you, you have a smaller footprint. The, your places are large, but they're not a, the big box. Right. So the traditional co-working space downtown that we're talking about with these major competitors is anywhere from 25 to 50, 60,000 square feet. Um, our first space was 6,000 square feet, and um, our second space was 6,000 square feet. The space that we just opened up is, is much larger at 13,000 square feet, but still is um, much smaller than these spaces that everybody else is pursuing. And so I think that what it is is you know creating um, this sweet spot where I can put together a space that can support itself, that can have these like sort of high design characteristics um, but also um, be intimate enough and be relevant enough to people that it doesn't feel like they're going to a Holiday Inn. Right, exactly. So I know you've learned a lot about architecture and design doing this and that there's some really interesting and thoughtful design details in each of your locations. Can you share with the audience what you've learned about how people choose to use space and how the interior design in the various locations that you currently are in has right. changed. And there's some little details that I th- find really fascinating. Yeah, so one of the things that happened in the very beginning, um, you know, this buddy of mine owned the building. And um, 
I raised some money to do it. I put a bunch of my own money into it as well. And I started looking around at general contractors and, and who was going to build it. And, and I had done some residential renovations in the past, and I had renovated my own house. And uh, at the time, I was like, okay, you know what? I'm going to build this. And so I went out and got my contractor's license, went out and got our OSHA certification, wow. and we decided to build it ourselves. And so a lot of that was talking directly to people who would be users and really trying to understand how we would respond to space. And, um, and I think that, I mean, that is the one thing that people say over and over again is like, these spaces feel really well designed. And uh, there are so many stories about how um, the spaces changed fundamentally from the plans that were written on the paper after we sort of started feeling out like what was going to be going on in this particular area and how we were going to use it. And so we always think about what, what's the vibe going to be like. Um, and then also, you know, choosing the right space to develop in the first place is a huge component. You know, um, that is, I think, probably the primary driver of what makes a great space um, in the end is making sure that it was the right space in the beginning. Okay. So... I, I know that, um, so, so like one example was the bathroom, the location yeah. of the bathroom. Yeah. Can you talk about that? <laughs> and one of, one of the original space in Chestnut Hill and yes. then with your subsequent spaces. Yeah, so um, we thought that it would be great to put the bathrooms right at the front. People come in, they need to use the bathroom. Um, but uh, the host, um, you know, the reception area is also right there. And um, we found that there's a level of, um, conspicuousness that people appreciate when they use the bathroom. Hello, um, <laughs> anybody still in there? Right. <laughs> and um, and so uh, that that, that was right. that was something that we learned very quickly was that you know we should split those things up and move the bathrooms into their kind of their own area and have our reception so they can be free and clear and so that people can have their privacy. But that's just one of uh, a lot mm -hmm, of different mm -hmm. things. I mean, we found that um, you know for the users who were doing the dedicated desks that didn't have an office and for our floor members that we needed um, to create some private space and so we ended up doing um, some private phone booths after the fact and creating spaces where they can go and have confidential calls and that sort of thing and you know that that sort of phone booth uh, is sort of standard practice now but it was not something that we immediately thought of and so we try to keep a very interactive approach to um, what our spaces are and not treat them as static you know finished products um, we're looking at how people use the space and and how we can consistently modify the space to make sure that it maintains like optimum levels of usability usability but also i know that you've said uh, you want to make the, the space feel like home yeah. but preserve the prof professionalism of yeah. the space because people are there to work. Absolutely. And and that's where we constantly try and make it feel like home. Um, one of the things that, that I knew that I wanted to do right away was fill the spaces with plants and make it green. And, and that's your last uh, name. That is my last name. Um, um, not coincidentally. Name is destiny, right? Um, but yeah, so we, we try to bring a lot of um, fresh plants in. Um, I love cut flowers, uh, and so we bring a lot of flowers in. Um, I get a lot of motivation from reading um, magazines on design and architecture and business and technology. So I'm constantly filling the spaces and kind of curating um, what's going on there. And, um, and really just um, making sure that we have good snacks, good food. Um, we went to our friend Stephanie Rowley at High Point Coffee, and she helped us like develop this nice proprietary blend uh, of coffee. And so that's a big part of our identity as well. 
And um, and then we grew very quickly into like the sort of content and programming game. And we really wanted to do stuff um, that blurred the social uh, boundaries of, of what people consider from their workspace and have consistently tried to do uh, events um, that uh, would, would help our people continue to grow, both culturally, from a business standpoint, and, and sort of holistically as human beings. So give us a sample of what's on the spring calendar in terms of events at some of the Kismet locations yes. or some recent events that you've done. Right. So um, just yesterday we had um, something that we call the social media breakfast. And we found that a lot of our users and people that we knew were very interested in the power of social media. And it is uh, something that is frequently considered uh, a great villain uh, or a pastime that you should pursue outside of the workplace and yet many people have made like very, very abundant careers out of working the social media point. And uh, to that end, yesterday we had um, in our first uh, second major event at, at Kismet in Maniunk, um, a gentleman by the name of Wendell Holland, and he just won Survivor um, last year, a million dollars. And, um, and he came in to talk about how he has used social media as a component of his life. And we don't just talk about it as a tool for business, but we talk about it, um, how you can create safe boundaries for it in your life, how it works with children, how it works with your friends, with your business and, um, and how you can turn off with it and, uh, things like that. And so we're trying to consistently do things that we think provide value. Um, we recently did a, uh, a public speaking seminar and we have a bunch of other ideas for things like that, that we're going to build into. So how does it work? Is it the, is the membership all inclusive or are there tiered packages? So to, to participate or to attend some of these events, the members pay an additional fee or is that included in their subscription? How, how does the membership work? If you can kind of it, give us. Right. So, um, to, if you want to just be a member and come in and sit down and use your computer anywhere in the space, it's $350 a month and you get 24 seven access. You get to drink our coffee, seltzer water, beer, wine, use our printer, use our redundant Wi-Fi. You know, we always have Comcast and Fios to make sure that we never lose a signal. Um, so that's 350 a month. So that's basically the most elemental package. If you want a dedicated desk with a file cabinet, be able to leave your stuff day to day. Um, that is a dedicated desk and that's about 450 a month. And then we have offices in all three locations, ranging um, in price from six hundred to three thousand. Um, and so it really depends on how much space you need and um, and how you want to use it. Okay. So, um, I'm sorry. And and to that end, um, all of our members can do the vast majority of our events for free, and then they have access to the conference room and um, and to do their own events as well. Oh, okay. Um, but many of our events are open to the public, and we use that as a marketing tool for helping people learn about what we're doing. Great. So what challenges have you faced getting the concept off the ground? Because, it, I mean, it sounds like it's been massively successful, but there were probably some, um, you know... Yep, massively successful well, would be an overestimation oh, okay. of where we are, but, okay. well, but it's done very well. Me. <laughs> no, 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 we, it's done well, and we're growing. Okay. Um, I think one of the things that is uh, very hard to know beforehand is just how hard it is to run a business, how hard it is to have people show up every day, have the lights on, have the internet on, keep it clean, and, and make it work. And that is something, um, you know, we've grown very fast. We now have three businesses. We have over 150 members um, spread out across our three spaces. And that is, um, it's an incredible responsibility. And um, 
you know, so like making sure that you pay attention to how that works and taking care of uh, your, your, your staff and the people that you're working with and making sure that they feel um, both appreciated and supported in their, their efforts. Um, that's its own community. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very hard to um, balance the demands of an average life because I still have to um, pursue my career in real estate to okay. support myself while I grow the Kismet brand. So um, just balancing it all is uh, a real challenge and something that I'm learning from every day. So do the three locations already have their own distinct character or is it really kind of like is the, the Chestnut Hill location tends to have members that are in certain industries versus Maniunk or, or right now it's kind of... We're still figuring that okay. out, mm-hmm. but I mean, there's definitely like um, our Chestnut Hill users come in earlier and and leave earlier, and you know, generally are like kind of rushing back to families and outside responsibilities um, in our downtown location. And what we're already seeing in Maniunk is it's going to be a a later audience, people who are working till seven, people who want to hang out until eight o'clock. So those locations are open later in the day. And, um, and, you know, but we're constantly paying attention to what's going on there. But yes, they do have distinct personalities. They do have distinct needs. And I learned very quickly that we could not treat one the way that we treated the other. Not cookie cutter. Yeah. So I know that you have plans to expand. Are you comfortable talking about um, uh, where you would like to expand in terms of uh, other cities or other neighborhoods? I think that right now I think of it only in terms of Philadelphia. But, um, you know, I could easily see doing a venue in Fishtown um, and then going to Conshohocken Media Doylestown. I'd love to go to Princeton. I think Princeton is an awesome city. Princeton, New Jersey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, uh, you know, but it's, you know, we'll figure that out as it comes. I'm not, I don't want to get ahead of myself, but, um, I do think that there is a lot of value in having a network of spaces that people can use and, um, can build off the community. And I, and I think that there's a lot of value in, in what the spaces offer to, the individual communities. And we have done a lot to open our doors to nonprofits, cultural and social organizations that might um, be forced to otherwise meet in much lesser space. And, um, and we really want to, I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot is, is kind of developing our brand as a 21st century community center. Okay, great. So you're clearly somebody who loves the city and you're passionate about the city, but you're also a pragmatist, right? Yeah. So what are some of the challenges that the city of Philadelphia needs to face up to, to, to live up to its full potential? Are you, can you share with us? Yeah. And you know, this is, this is funny because I uh, just spent four days down in Austin, Texas at South by Southwest. And I was down there with a group. Got energized. Yeah. Well, and, and you know, it was a massive festival with over 70,000 people, but there was a group down there from Philadelphia called Amplify Philly. And it was organized by Rec Philly, which is doing a lot of fantastic things. And I want to commend them for what they did. They did uh, an, an awesome service for the, the, the city of Philadelphia. But I was able to be with a lot of people from the Commerce Department and a lot of very um, a lot of the movers and shakers that are making the city of Philadelphia as vibrant as it is today. And it was funny to hear some of these people that were talking, they would talk about things like, like our wage tax, like some of the, the, the lesser attractive parts of um, our, our city government and our day-to-day life. And, um, and then, you know, the people from the Commerce Department would be like, don't talk about that stuff. And so I'm always like, also trying to, con- con- you know, communicate some of the good 
some of the challenges and and try to understand you know what the bigger picture is but i think in the general scope of things philadelphia is on a phenomenal trajectory um but we always have to keep our eye on the wheel and make sure that we're developing um, all of our communities and not just specific communities and make sure that we're concentrating on our public schools and, and education, make sure that we're making it cleaner, make sure that we're paying attention to the environment um, and, and make sure that we're helping people build um, fundamentally kind of holistic lives. And that's what was attractive to me when I came to Philadelphia was that I could, I literally felt like I could be a better human being and that I could have a, a better work-life balance and that I could, um, you know, have... Design your life. Well, yeah. design my life, but have deeper and more meaningful friendships. And um, that I've, I really felt like, and I've heard this from a lot of the people that I've helped come to Philadelphia, that, 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 that socially their lives improved and that they were able to have... Um, you know, to find more meaning in their life as opposed to uh, the the deep and intense rat race that they felt like they were in in New York. And I'm not saying that you can't live phenomenal life in New York City or Washington or Boston and that we're somehow better. But, you know, I think that people have to look inside themselves and see what is interesting for them and what is important. And, you know, I was uh, at a place in my life where I needed the intimacy um, that Philadelphia offered. I needed the immediacy of some of the relationships that I was able to develop. And it helped me in uh, immeasurable ways to, to, to become what I, what I think is a, is a better person, to have uh, a better lifestyle with my family, to be involved in the youth sports groups with my children, and to uh, volunteer for the nonprofits that I thought could help make the city of Philadelphia a better place, and um, to be engaged politically um, so that it was, um, you know, I could help... Um, really move the needle. Well, and make, yeah. make the city of Philadelphia pay attention to what it was doing and try to do it better. Right. So what's next on the horizon for Christopher Plant and Kismet and all the various ventures you have? What are you most excited about accomplishing this well, year? Or it, launching this year? Okay, well, being here, on, <laughs> uh, on, being here on G-Town Radio, which I think is okay. amazing, um, we are going to launch uh, Radio Kismet. And oh, we're going to well, have uh, uh, a similar setup and really try That's to um, create um, an aggregator for... Um, different organizations and people that are trying to do, um, you know, what you're doing here and, um, you know, audience development, community development. And we want to uh, take what we're doing and broaden its appeal. And push um, it out to the world. We'll yeah. push it out to the world, but also um, talk about kind of the the, the messaging of, of why we came to co-working in the first place and, and what, you know, this idea of kismet means, um, you know, sort of lifestyle development and what, what you you know, what people really want. And so um, I think that when I, when I talk about Kismet to people, um, some people automatically think I'm trying to sell them something. And I think that with, with Radio Kismet, we'll be able to broaden um, our approach and our appeal. So we're going to be launching that in our space down at 10th and Spring Garden and, um, and, and look to do um, some, some bigger things. Uh, in November of uh, last year, um, we organized our first um, big ideas festival, which was called Grateful, and that was G R E A T P H L. Oh, clever! Uh, my little, uh, you know, trying yeah. trying to be. And um, and what we did is we rented out the Venice Island Performance Center uh, over in Manionk, which is a Parks and Rec property. Okay. And we had twenty different speakers come in and present for ten to twenty minutes 
a piece about whatever it was that was driving them in their day-to-day and in their career and in their life, and then somehow wrap that up into their Philadelphia story. Um, But we wanted to try and make it more interesting than a traditional Ideas Festival, and we brought in dance, we brought in some theater, we brought in live music, and... um, and you know, and I asked people to create kind of a custom approach to what they were doing. Okay. And so we had a gentleman, um, Joey Sweeney, who is a, a successful musician here in Philadelphia, who like talked about the city of Philadelphia, what's happening with its development, and then would sing some songs and created this very robust, you know, like thirty-minute program. Uh, I had a, a young gentleman who I think has actually been on the show before, uh, Jackson Craig, who is at school at Germantown Friends. Um, I helped him. Uh, I coached him to write like an epic, like fifteen-minute song about the wow. the history of Philadelphia and kind of where it's gone and his own experience. And he did that, and and so we tried to make something that was um, super unique, um, but also um, pushing the city of Philadelphia forward. And um, and we want to grow that brand. And we're talking about trying to do uh, a twenty-four hour ideas festival. Um, in Philadelphia uh, in October of Great. 2019. Great. Well, maybe we can have you come back on the show to talk about that in the fall. That'd be fantastic. Yeah. So, Christopher, for people that want to connect with you, where are the best places to find you on the web? Yeah, so you can find me always at movedophilly.com. Um, you can also, I mean, my email address is very simple. It's plantastic at gmail.com. That's P-L-A-N-T-A-S-T-I-C at gmail.com. Um, and, uh, you know, the Move to Philly website is a good place for that. Kismet Cowork has a, a great website. You can always find me through my real estate company, Elfont Wasehik and Realtors. Um, I'm, I'm pretty open. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. And um, so I think I'm easy to find. Great. Well, folks, there you have it. We've been talking with Christopher Plant. Uh, founder and president of Kismet Cowork. And Christopher, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I've learned a lot today, and I thank you so much for sharing your story with our audience. Yeah, thank you for having me. So that's it. We've reached the end of another episode of the Jumpstart Philly Radio Show. And if you'd like to learn more about Jumpstart, please visit our website at jumpstartgermantown.com. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back next week with another great interview with a local real estate developer. Until next time, bye-bye. Bye-bye.